One of the things we've seen in Acts over the last few weeks is that this is a story that is unfolding. This is not finished. This is dot, dot, dot. How is it going to pan out? How is the situation going to develop? Because you remember we saw it was what Jesus was continuing to do. Remember we saw that we were in week one we said Luke is writing, verse one. Um, he, he is writing after he's written his gospel. The gospel was what he began to do and teach. And so by implication here in Acts, this is what Jesus continues to do and to teach. This is his kingdom growing. But of course, he's not around anymore. Jesus has, as we'll see in our passage today, ascended to the Father. So he's seated at the right hand. He has finished his work. The cross is done. So if he is there, and yet he is continuing his work here, then how does that work? How does that actually function? Well, we've said it is through his people. People like these first apostles. People like us. People who are imperfect and get stuff wrong and muck up and are fearful. And and yet people whom he equips for the task that he calls them to. Because something transformed them. We said that a couple of weeks ago. Something was different. Something changed them. Their story in the Gospels is not particularly flattering at all. It's, It's all slightly embarrassing. One minute they're acting all triumphant. This man they had given it all up for. He's riding into Jerusalem. Crowds were singing. Everyone's cheering. It's all very exciting. Jubilation, rejoicing. Here is God's king. And the next minute he's dead on a cross. This one they've given it all up for. Dead. So what do they do? They scarper, they run, they leg it. Maybe they had banked it all on the wrong guy. Maybe he was just a charlatan. Maybe he had been a fake. What had gone wrong? But something transforms them. Something transforms them because just days later they are very, very different people. And we said it was two things that we saw had transformed them. The first is that they saw him. They saw Jesus walking and talking and eating and fishing and they learnt from him. They actually saw him. This is not him just living on in his teaching. This is not him just living on in the the disciples' hearts. They actually saw the resurrected Jesus. And that transformed them. That changed them. But actually it was more than that as well. They were changed because his spirit had come to live in them. God's Holy Spirit is sent to equip them. We saw it in 1 verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is Acts unfolding. This is Jesus continuing his work through his people who, who have seen him and who are equipped by him, doing his work. So tonight, we are in verses 9 through to the end of the chapter. Doesn't tell you that. Uh, 1 verse 9 through to 1 verse 26. The story continues. So follow it with me. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will 
come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days... Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, this scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. So there's our passage. And we're going to see three reasons to be hopeful. Three reasons at the start of the story that we should be hopeful and trust God. The first one is because the Saviour has ascended, verses 9 to 11. This is 9 to 11. The Saviour has ascended. So just as had been promised, he was taken back up to the Father. And there he remains to this very day. There he is now. Jesus has finished his work on the cross. So he's gone to be with the Father. And he sat down. Now, we often think that this was like some sort of space rocket. He didn't zoom off into the stratosphere. It's a slightly weird language, isn't it, when you read it there. In verses 9 to 11, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. There's, there's language of clouds, language of being hidden from their sight, which reveals some kind of mystery. There's a, an element that we just don't quite know. But also in the Bible, clouds signify uh, the presence of God. Again and again and again, when clouds come up, we see that God is there. So he has gone to be with God the Father. And why does that make us hopeful? Maybe you think, actually, if Jesus has gone to be with the Father, I would be pretty unhopeful. i kind of like him to be around, please. I think three reasons we're to draw hope. The first is because he is reigning now. His job is done. The cross is finished. He died. He rose again. 
He ascended ascended to the Father. So that key act of his that splits all of history is done. It's finished. He is victorious. He's been successful. Now there's nothing more for him to do to secure a people for himself. That has happened. So he is gone. His work is finished. At least in terms of securing a people for himself. So that's the first one. He is reigning now. Be hopeful. Be thankful. Because he's finished. The second one. Because he has gone. So he will send his Holy Spirit. He will send the Spirit to empower his people. So we get that at the end of the next chapter. Um, Peter's first sermon. Next chapter 2 verse 32. He finishes like this. He says. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So before the Spirit would come, Jesus went. Jesus had to go. And so he went to the Father and he sent one like him to empower his people to continue his work. He had to go before the Spirit would come. That's the second reason for being hopeful. The third is because he's gone, so he'll come back. The, um, these two shady guys in white say that, don't they? They say, men of Galilee, while you stand here looking into the sky, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you see him go into heaven. So there they are, the disciples, gazing up, mouths open, catching flies. And these two, I guess, angels say, go and get on with the job he's given you. And because he's gone, because he's left, and the plan can get along, and it will finish one day, he will come back one day. So because he's ascended, so we're to be hopeful. The second reason is that the scriptures have been fulfilled, verses 12 to 22. I think on the surface, this next sort of section looks a bit weird when you get to Acts chapter 1. We're not quite expecting it. It's a slightly strange extended account all about Judas Iscariot. Why is it there? Why does Luke make such a big deal of it? I wonder if there's a number of reasons. One is that he just needs to mention it because it's the kind of question we're going to have. Actually, where does Judas fit in? What was he doing? Was it part of God's plan? What does that mean? So on the surface, it seems to all be about Judas, but I wonder whether under the surface, it's all about suffering and evil. It's about the way that God is in control of bad stuff. God can even use bad things to further his plans To fulfill his purposes. And as you read through Acts. We'll see that over the next academic year. We will need to get to grips with that truth. Because it's not plain sailing. It doesn't perhaps go as we might expect it to. We see God working in the messiness of life. God working in difficulties. God working even through evil. Take it as they remember Judas. There would have been. Difficult memories for them. Judas excusing himself at the Last Supper on Thursday before the Friday of the cross. Later that night as he leads the Jewish authorities to them, 
in the garden. As he betrays Jesus with that kiss. Memories of Jesus being arrested, tried, crucified. And no doubt those questions that follow of why is this happening? For the believer, as life goes wrong, why is God letting this happen? What is God doing? Is he in control? Can we trust him? Often at the time, we just don't really understand. Perhaps there's a sense in which we're not meant to, and we just have to trust him. But I take it Luke, at least in part, includes these verses because they give us a sort of heads up as to some of the truths we can cling on to when it seems to all be going wrong. They give us some at least glimpses of help when life is difficult. So what do we see happening? Well, the apostles, as they're meant to, head back to Jerusalem. Um, They have a prayer meeting, which is a great thing to do. In the midst of uncertainty, when they're feeling weak and not quite sure what to do next. And then verse 15, a little later, we don't quite know how long later, perhaps a week or a month, um, Peter gets up to preach. Numbers have risen to about 120, which is interesting, isn't it? Everyone counts. Numbers do matter, um, to some extent, a little bit. But then he gets onto this sort of thorny topic of Judas. Now it is interesting, if you... If you're someone who reads the Bible, you will know as we read different aspects, different Gospels, that there are slightly different takes on things, different angles and ways of looking at stuff. So if you read it in Matthew, chapter 27, have a look later, um, we're told that the Jewish authorities paid Judas money to hand Jesus over. They give him blood money. But after he had done it, he was so racked with guilt, he, he gives it back to them and then he goes and he hangs himself. Matthew says that the authorities, because they couldn't do anything else with the money, because it was dirty money, that they go and buy a field. They couldn't put it into temple funds. So, of course, sceptics say, well, there's a contradiction as we, as we read these different accounts. But I think they're simply two accounts of the same thing, but just from slightly different angles. So in verse 18, you see Judas buys himself a field. I wonder if it's just metaphorically speaking. So with his money that he hands back, this field is bought it's perfectly believable to then see him hanging himself and his body falling down and rupturing as Luke, the doctor, graphically describes for us. It's interesting, isn't it, how doctors like blood and stuff. Um, but then look at verse 20 with me. See where it goes to. For, says Peter, he's been reading his Bible, he says, For in the book of Psalms, says this, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So Peter is quoting the Old Testament to show that Judas' betrayal was included in God's plan. But as was God's judgment after Judas' betrayal, his punishment as well. So Psalm 69 that he quotes there is a psalm of David, King David, one of Jesus' ancestors. And it's a psalm of betrayal by one of his close allies who hands him over. God plans that Judas would betray the Lord Jesus and then he would punish him for doing that. And if you're anything like me, then you've got questions that raise from that kind of idea. Is that fair? 
How can God do that sort of stuff? How does that work? It's a fascinating theme in the Bible, which actually is incredibly common. It's something I think we will always struggle to get our heads around to some extent. So did Judas choose to act in this way? Yes. Was he coerced by God to do it? No. Was it part of God's plan? Yes. Did God make him do it? No. There's this tension that goes on at the very heart of the Bible in lots of places. It's what theologians call sort of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And it says God is completely in charge. God is completely sovereign. He is Lord. And yet man is responsible. We have a part to play. He uses weak people like us. We are culpable when we sin. He doesn't make us do it. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's plan at the cross, and yet Judas is culpable for his evil. Which I think means we're to be both encouraged and challenged as Christians. We're to be encouraged because nothing is coming that God is not aware of, that he is not sovereign over. Nothing is going to take him by surprise. He is in charge. But we're challenged because we've got a part to play. Because he uses people like us. Little people. Weak people. People with faults. People with a background. He uses our, our words. Our actions. Our messy lives. He is sovereign. And yet we're responsible. And the Bible just says those two, they go together. You might struggle with that, but they do. Someone hopefully described it as like, a, um, as like a train track. If you look at a train track running into the distance, you see the two lines are completely parallel. But somewhere on the horizon they meet. One day we will know and we will get it. For now we just trust both. We pray as if it's all about him and work as if it's all about us. We trust his sovereignty, the fact that he's in charge. And yet he uses people like us to fulfill his purposes. And so Peter opens up the Bible and says this was always the way it was going to be. This was the plan. He was always going to betray Jesus and he will be punished for that. But he also sees that there was someone to replace him. Again, Psalm 109. Again, it's a Psalm of David. One from the line of Jesus. One of the important kings in the Bible. And again, you have a close friend who betrays the king, who repays evil for good, hatred for friendship. And so one will come to to replace him, to be a part of the team, which leads them to action. Verse 21, therefore, therefore it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Again, it's a helpful thing just to chew over. God speaks in his word, and yet we are to live in response to what he said. If you're anything like me, you can 
kind of flip-flop either way. One is, well, God's in charge. This is what he says will happen. I'm just going to sit back and let him do it. Why do I bother doing anything? Why do I bother praying? Why do I bother talking to my friends of Christ? What does it matter? Because God is in charge. He has spoken. It will come to pass. We, we become fatalists. Or we go the other way and say, well, I'm responsible this week. I must do everything. I must fill my diary with meeting after meeting and meet up with people. I must cram everything in. I need an extra day or two this week because it's all about me. So we flip-flop either way. Either we say, well, it's, it's in his word. It's all about him or it's me and what I do. It's all about me. But it's striking what you have here. It's that God has spoken and they live in response to the way that God has spoken. May another take his place of leadership. They crack on with that. So second reason for hope, we see God's faithfulness in the scriptures being fulfilled. The third reason, these last verses, the substitute is chosen. The thing I love about these last verses is that they are just so every day So nitty-gritty. So normal. There are all these grand plans afoot. This is what Jesus continues to do through his church. The gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. Through his spirit-empowered people. And it all sounds kind of out there somewhere and enormous. But they haven't got enough people. So they've got to choose somebody else to come and get stuck in. They need to find somebody to replace Judas. So, verse 23, they... Nominate two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. As you see, 26, they cast lots, the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the 11 apostles. They need to replace Judas. It's as simple as that. It's a question of personnel. It's a question of needing somebody else to join the team of the apostles. Incidentally, I think this is the last time in the Bible you get casting of lots. If you're interested in that sort of thing, I think... I think it's because the Holy Spirit is then poured out afterwards. So that's not how we we get wisdom anymore. It's not how we're guided by God anymore. Um, This is the last time. It's a decision about who to bring onto the team. I don't want this to be a call for people to serve. There are always ways to get involved at church. Always things to be doing. There are always rotors to go on or people to be meeting up with and caring for and loving. Being kind to you, listening, being generous. But God uses people. People like you, people like me. People to serve. People who are weak. And so, the, the board is set up. The pieces are ready. And we await next week, chapter 2, where we'll see Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit finally comes. This promised Holy Spirit, God coming to live in his people. And he arrives. How do we respond to these, I hope, three glimpses of, of hopefulness, of positivity at the start of Acts. We're going to be praying in a moment, but just four things, I guess, that we can be, after we've responded personally through song, we can be thinking through and praying about. The first one is to say, to have a kind of a humble confidence, to be hopeful, because God is working his plan out. He is at work. The, the proverbial domino rally has started 
and it continues and it will finally reach us and involve us. But there's a right sort of hopefulness, a confidence we can have, which we can turn into prayer. Second one is just the thankfulness that Jesus has risen, his job on the cross has finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done to rescue his people. He has ascended and he sent his spirit. Thankfulness too that he uses difficulties. He even works through bad things that happen. In some way they're a part of his plan, a part of his purposes. And fourthly, he uses people. Imperfect people. He needed somebody else to replace Judas. And they chose Matthias. And there you go. Let's pray that people would, would be involved. People would work. That God might use people in this place at this time.